This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we had to talk about in this episode include... Reframing the Fumble. The Loveland Frogman. And my 2023 London Book Haul. It's the most wonderful time of the year, and I'm Mrs. Claus. Ho, 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 and I'm Santa Claus, here to spill the cocoa beans on the kerfuffle here at the North Pole. Kerfuffle? What kerfuffle? Well, you see, my dear, the elves have been acting a bit... Hmm, strangely in the workshop. Oh, Santa, what's going on with our elves? Rumor has it a pesky imp has sneaked into the workshop to sabotage the toys and ruin Christmas. Oh, my goodness, a mischievous imp at the North Pole. Yes, indeed, and the tricky part is our elves can be quite the mischief makers themselves, so I'm having trouble telling who's the imp. And that's where Weird Little Elf comes in, right? Exactly. Weird Little Elf is a holiday card game for all ages. Players take turns being me, ho, 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 Santa, and ask the elves one simple question. And the rest play the elves who answer the question. But secretly, one of them is the imp, following a special rule like scratch your nose or cross your eyes that they have to do on the sly. Accuse the imp correctly three times and you win. Plus, it's an acute palm-sized box. Perfect for a stocking stuffer. You can get your holiday shopping done early and give a delightful surprise to your family, co-workers, teachers, and daycare staff. And don't forget our gamer buddies. Ho, 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 they'll love it. We can get one for them and maybe sneak in a few rounds ourselves. So this Christmas, let's spread some cheer with Weird Little Elf, the ultimate holiday party game. Ho, ho, ho. The rattle of dice off the table, the thump of miniature, oh, onto another miniature, bent his little sword. Are we out of Doritos? How are we out of Doritos? We literally just went to Costco. And the, what do you mean you loaned Peter Frampton to your sister? We're never getting Peter Frampton your back. Your sister's notorious no for keeping records. This is the worst gaming hut ever because our gaming hut is centered on the fumble, the worst mechanic ever. And Robin, today... We're going to, are we going to reclaim the fumble, try and bring it back into the family of mechanics, or are we going to send it further into the outer darkness? We're going to reframe the fumble. So, well, let's uh, cover the, the basics first, because we, we've covered the fumble in a highfalutin sort of philosophical way in episode 254, but I realized we hadn't really covered it except in passing. Well, our rule, Robin, is that every 254 episodes, we must cover the fumble. Right. <laughs> so we're late. Right. But the thing about fumbles is they happen more than two in 500. They, yeah, they happen right. more often than that. And I want to quickly skate past the question of, do you want fumbles in your game? Because chances are, if, like me, you have recently done so and polled your players, and I was kind of figuring, well, the, there's kind of too many fumbles happening here. It's everybody, do we want to fix that? And I pulled my players, and they all said, no, we love fumbles. Partly because that Canadian. is because what they're enjoying playing in a goofball manner. Mm-hmm. Could be played more seriously, but that's they're happy to play it in a riffy, silly way, and that the fumbles contribute to that. And the other thing about fumbles is people also love criticals, and they super love it 
when they roll a critical and the the, the creature rolls a fumble. That's that's super awesome. Yep, great. That's the best. But generally speaking, sometimes fumbles, as we as you've talked about before uh, regarding vampire, are misapplied to things that are meant to be tonally more serious and. If you do not reframe them, he says, getting back to his particular framing of this topic, they, I think, tend to be sort of tonally uh, jarring. Right. So, uh, basically, my complaint with fumbles, uh, to lay it out there, is that for most of the games that are not explicitly about being schlemiels, which includes, admittedly, the first through, say, third level of most F20 games, Fumbles ruin everything. They ruin character identification because you're like, well, I'm I'm a goof, but I'm not that big a goof. They ruin story if story is happening. They wreck your sense of empowerment within the world, which is very important if you're going to engage with the world, the ability that you have to, to pull on its levers and make things happen. They basically do a lot of damage for the statistical representation of things going wrong. And I would argue... Kind of it's the GM's rule, or one of their roles, is to make things go wrong for the players by the actions of a malevolent universe. That in a Lovecraft game, or a vampire game, or a Unknown Armies game, or a most kind of games, if something goes wrong, it's because some bad person out there, or Cthulhu, is monkeying with stuff, and it's going wrong for you thus-wise. And that having a fumble, especially on a relatively narrow chance such as one in 20, 5% of the things you do are going to just be ruined, that, unless you're playing Inspector Cluzo or the Rat Stabber from the canonical early Warhammer fantasy type games, that's wrong. That that wrecks everything, and I don't like it. I couldn't agree with you more, but as previously stated, players love it. Yeah. <laughs> so here's how we're going to reframe it so that it doesn't do some of the things that you and I agree that it does. Right. First of all, I think, the best way, at least in your head, to reframe it is to stop calling it a fumble, uh, which <laughs> implies that it's a screw-up on the part of the character, and change its name in your head or ideally at the table to a setback or an escalation. And so what it is that you're describing is not an error on the part of the character, because if you look at any heroic fiction, you don't see... Kirk ever screwing up or Batman or, or Bond. They're not uh, making mistakes. They're not blowing it at the crucial moment. Unless it's like a Coen Brothers spy movie, you're not seeing that. Right. But what you do see all the time in the rhythm of a suspenseful scene is, as you've already suggested, are the world snapping back and suddenly making things worse when they seem to be going well. So if you are uh, cracking the safe and you roll what would be a fumble and is now a setback or an escalation, suddenly uh, you start to hear a, a ticking sound inside the safe as if something has gone wrong and, and is, is getting worse. Or if you are, you know, engaged with a, a sword fight uh, with someone, they slash through your uh, sword and break it in two, assuming that the rules don't already, you know, have a, a way of having a disarm roll that's separate from the uh, fumbles. Because that you see all the time, right, in a, a fight. And it's not that the character was an idiot and picked up a paper sword. It's that the bad guy is super badass and now has put you in an even worse position. Right. The notion of the fumble as the universe coming after you is one of the things that Unknown Armies does fairly well. Also, it fumbles happen much less often being a percentile system. And it's the, you know, 
well, welcome to living in an inimical universe. Things are going to wreck your life, whether you, you know, are trying hard or not. And that's more the Unknown Army's philosophy. It happens less often. And characters in Unknown Armies are not meant to be Batman. They are meant to be strivers. They are meant to be sort of, you know, people who are mostly trying to stay out of Batman's way in, in some sense or another, right? Right. Or maybe their goal is to eventually ascend at the end of the game to become Batman. Right. And so I thought that for the rest of this segment, since we both now agreed on the correct way to do this, mm-hmm. that what we do is throw each other situations where the character has rolled a setback or escalation, and then the other person will be the uh, either the player or the GM uh, giving the narration. That is another thing, though, is that who narrates the outcomes of success varies depending on the game and the practices that you're using mm-hmm. at the table. So if you have a what used to be called a fumble system and is now called a setback system, you have to make sure that your players know the deal and know that what they're supposed to describe is something about the opposition uh, getting an advantage, not about them uh, screwing up, because we can have this through all you want. But if the player still says, oops, I slip on some soap and fall down on the deck, then, you know, you've still got the same problem. So you have to uh, get the memo out, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. So speaking of pirate ships, Ken, the character, my character is is climbing up a rope uh, with a grappling hook, trying to get on a pirate ship. And uh, this is a game where you describe outcomes as a GM. And I say, oh, no, I rolled a setback. So what is the setback that is not a slapstick goofery on my character's part? Right. Well, like the classic, you're climbing a rope, you know, up the side of a ship. Well, either an enemy pirate has dumped oil down the side of the ship to try and make you slip off or perhaps to set you on fire. You're not sure what, but it's made you your, your grasp slippery, depending on how bad the setback is. Another pirate, an enemy pirate might have, or a hated Britisher might have unplugged your grapnel, like leveraged it out of the wood, and now you're sliding down the side of the ship, or just a wave has swooped up and, and swamped you, and so you take some level of uh, of hit point damage, but you're still connected to the ship and climbing up, and that would be, you know, sort of path-dependent, right? What what do you see is going on in the scenario? Did you do, Are they climbing up an unguarded or a guarded side of the ship? You know, various things that would let you get basically the same sort of result. Either you're slippy, you're, you're actually falling, or you've been hit by a wave and done some damage. Right. And that increases the tension and keeps you in the scene rather than releasing the tension with a laugh. And right. As we've said before, six or seven times already undercutting the character. Right. Because what you don't want is, for example, oh, your feet slip on the planking and you slam face forward into the ship, take such and such damage. That's embarrassing and stupid, and you could have done that same damage with a wave or with a, a Spaniard uh, or, or British or whoever dropping a rock on you, and that okay. would have been dramatic. So hit me with the situation okay. that you've, you've okay. just rolled a setback. Robin, you, uh, your character, is moving through a, a dungeon, you're checking ahead for traps, and you've you've got a setback. What happened? So the, the setback is... While I am uh, looking for one trap and spotting it, another trap behind me activates. Right. You you found the, the trigger of the first trap or the two traps are slaved together in some cunning kobaldish way. And you've been ruefully bested by a better trap master. Is that the sort of story that we're telling? Right. Now, uh, you are at a, a cocktail party and you are uh, attempting to charm the elderly ph- philanthropist who can not only fund your mission but 
can uh, supply you with the antique map uh, necessary to undergo that mission, but can you have rolled a setback? Uh, what is that setback that does not make you look like a fool? The setback is that the elderly philanthropist remembers a grudge that he has against your father. And it's something like, your mission sounds interesting, young fellow, but I cannot let any son of Sir Colin look at my antique map after the shame he brought on my great aunt Gradinia or whatever. And now we have a mystery to solve. Was uh, my dad Colin actually bad instead of cool? Like I remember, he was a fun adventurer too. So you've deepened the mystery and maybe there's a way around it if you can either sweet talk the guy, which you probably can't because you did fumble, or you can, you know, solve the mystery of what happened to Great Aunt Gradinia and use that as an in back to get this antique map. Or at least you know now that you've got to, you know, set up a burglary of the old man instead of a sweet talking. Yeah. And again, none of these undercut the character, but they introduce tension. Hit me with a situation with a setback. Okay. You are navigating through intraterrestrial space. It's a cool hyperspacey type thing. And you're astrogating to a specific star where the adventure is. And you roll a fumble. What happens? I'm sorry, a setback. What happens? A setback. So the setback is that due to a stellar anomaly, not due to my fault, but uh, due to uh, a stellar anomaly, which is a, a known problem that you can do nothing about, it turns out that I have arrived a day too early, and I've been pushed back in time by a day, and that means that the uh, problem that I have identified and is supposed to go solve hasn't happened yet, which in one way seems kind of like an interesting advantage, but I have to figure out how to start dealing with the problem a day ahead because the person who's going to send the distress call hasn't sent it for 24 hours. So that's a surprise. It's a what the heck happened. And now, again, it's an additional obstacle of, well, do I just sit around for a day? There's probably a reason that I can't do that. For example, there's a, a whipsaw effect on this uh, navigation and the infraspace is going to close on me. So I can't just wait, I've got to do something now, and I've got to do something in a somewhat different situation than I'd expected. Right. Yeah. And once again, that adds mystery to the universe. It makes uh, interstellar travel legitimately dangerous and interesting, and it doesn't nerf the story by just sending you to a place that isn't the adventure. Right. Another classic situation, you are in an, an electronic store where you expect to find the clue. You've, of course, infiltrated after hours. A uh, police car drives up and you ha make your stealth roll and your stealth roll is a setback. Uh, what does that mean? Depending on the Im immediate situation and whether or not the game is a fighty type game, the setback might be as simple as a red alarm light starts blinking in the thing, telling you you've got such and such amount of time to get out of the shop. It might be the old classic, while you're searching around, the cat that sleeps in the shop, you know, jumps up and makes a noise and moves around attracting the cop. Or it might be a setback that you find the clue that you want, but it's inside a case, and the case is full of delicate things, and you notice that the case hasn't been opened in a long time, so that if you open it, it's going to make a lot of noise and maybe pull all the delicate things down. So you're warned before the pratfall, as opposed to, oh, you've had a setback, you, you know, knock a camera off the shelf and it makes a bunch of noise. Okay, hit me with one. Okay. You are uh, engaged in uh, sword play against uh, a bad guy, you know, classic uh, Three Musketeers type stuff, and you've, you've rolled a setback and the bad guy has just 
rolled a normal failure. It's a each size roll, but you rolled a setback and he rolled a failure. So it's not like he stabs you for extra. What's the setback? Right. So uh, he misses me, but because of the setback, I fail to see that the big bruiser behind me, who, unlike other musketeers, wields a cudgel instead of a rapier, has perfectly positioned himself to strike me and either actually hit me and do damage, as would sometimes be the case in uh, depending on the combat system, or just put me at a disadvantage where now I'm being flanked, I've got another opponent, and so I am uh, the worse off, I'm in more trouble, but again, I don't look like a goof. And speaking of looking like a goof, I'm going to uh, conclude on one where the GM is going to be very, very tempted to uh, make the character look dumb, which is that the this is a system where uh, it's an alchemy game, uh, the character is an alchemist, and you have to roll to make sure that your potions work and you're trying to create a special explosive that you'll be able to use and, and concentrate and turn into a sort of F-20 grenade to throw at the dragon later on. And in order to do this, you have to make a roll. And guess what, Ken? You just got an escalation. Oh, no. On the fame potion mixability table or the alchemy table, I've gotten an escalation and... I assume that the the simplest, uh, the grenade goes off in your hand, you take umpty-ump damage, is not on the table, because we are trying to maintain the nobility of alchemy in this game. Um, I think that the simplest escalation is that you've mixed the grenade, and then when you throw it, it does nothing. It explodes, but it explodes in a burst of rainbow light and the dragon's like i like rainbow light i don't get the point of that or some other methodology where you made a magical effect but it's not a magical effect that hurts a dragon now that's an excellent version of that if we're talking about the moment where you throw the grenade right but this is a moment where you're making the grenade and the player has made the roll so they know they've scored a setback Uh, what happens in that moment what happens in that moment Okay. Well, first of all, I would say you, the player, know you've scored a setback. You, the alchemist, do not know you've scored the setback. Let me know when you throw that at the dragon and we'll see what happens. Or if you don't want to do that wonderful result, what you do is you say that you've made the mixture. We are ruling out of pocket for whatever reason. Maybe the characters aren't robust. Maybe this is rune quest alchemy instead of D&D alchemy. So you don't have a million hit points to spare. So the grenade can't go off in your hand. I think that what happens is you uh, mix the grenade potion. You hear the clunk of the of the chemicals turning inert and dropping to the bottom of the pot. And then a smell begins to pour out of the grenade that signals your presence to the dragon, but it attracts other predators that it's like a smell of rotting meat. And so suddenly, you know, more monsters are going to be attracted to the smell of this grenade and the smell is getting it's on your hand now. And if you, Keep holding the grenade, it'll get on your arm and everywhere else. So what do you do with this grenade that smells like rotting meat? I would say change the magical effect to something that adds tension and and worsens your tactical position. Right. And it has to be something where there's a trade-off between getting rid of it. Like you can't just get rid of the grenade because it now smells like rotting meat. But there's something, you know, you've entered into a contract with the alchemical uh, egregores and you have to... You know, they they believe in Chekhov's F-20 grenade and mm-hmm. it has to go off. And right. You can't just throw it at a tree. You're now obligated to, to throw it in anger. And, and uh, so now 
you know, you don't have to throw it at the dragon, but you have to throw it at something and mean it. Mm-hmm. And like a lot of escalations, that leads to an interesting choice. It's a new obstacle rather than, you know, just a, a bad thing happens and, right. and that's it. And it's a period on that. And I still think at the end of it, any serious game, you want to decrease the chance of a fumble. Right. You know, have a, at least a, after, I think in a lot of games, if you then just make an odds even roll to see if, the fumble is really a fumble and, you know, cut them in half. That's probably a good uh, starting point. But like I started out saying, players still love fumbles and you can learn to love them too by making them setbacks. But I'm sure we won't have a setback as we proceed out of the gaming hut and into whatever other hut lies on the other side of this exciting commercial. Green Press invites you to a reality-shattered masked ball. With three new support products for the Yellow King role-playing game. Black Star Magic, a guide to supernatural powers in the four realms haunted by the King in Yellow. Where every spell is potent. A potent shock card, that is. Includes magic rules and their accompanying shock cards by Robin. And a magic-rich scenario for each of the four sequences. Dancer at the Bone Cabaret, Sarah Saltiel's Tale of Belle Epoque Terror. A Casket at Latil. Village-based military horror from Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Memories of a Dream Clown, Ruth Kitchen Tillman's visitation with everyone's favorite Aftermath children's entertainer. And Sarah's Love Wears No Mask, which brings Carcosa to its natural contemporary home, Reality Television. Also out now, Legions of Carcosa, the bestiary for the Yellow King. From alien parasites to warped human conspirators. From hungry buildings to incarnations of drought. From gods torn from the pages of myth to war machines that hunt in wolf-like packs. Legions of Carcosa presents 86 new foes to mystify, haunt, and menace your investigators. Fresh from the skull-matched minds of John R. Harness, Kira Magrin. Sam Saltiel and Monica Valatinelli with Daniel Kwan. Finally, you can now also grab Robin's latest novel, Fifth Imperative. Follow the technician, previously seen in The Missing and the Lost, as he continues his reluctant political rise and discovers a bullet that refuses to follow the rules. Kicking off a fast-paced supernatural alternate reality political thriller. Yep, it's one of those again. All three available now. That's Black Star Magic, Legions of Carcosa, and Fifth Imperative. Available at Royally Superior your local game stores or at the Pelgrane Press web shop. We're now going to head into that most elusive of huts, the hut that stands at the borderland between crackpotism, pseudo-archaeology, UFOs, psychics, paranormals. Over there in the corner, uh, there's a, a gray alien, a Nordic alien, they're listening to the alien big cat screaming in the moor out on the window. They've been joined by a cryptid today, and one of the most charming of cryptids, perhaps the most charming cryptid, certainly a beloved local fixture of a cryptid, and that would be the Loveland, Ohio Frogman. This is a topic you recently added to the hopper. Mm. How did you come across the Frogman, Ken? I ran across the Loveland Frogman uh, as a result of the movie Frogman, which I saw at the H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft Film Festival, and I got to introduce the film and talk to the director, Anthony Cousins, and uh, meet him and his producer and uh, one of the other people involved in the film. And they were very, very cool. The film was a superb blending of the cryptid story and the found footage movie. It, it worked very well. And he figured out a bunch of 
very scary reveals to do in the story, many of which are actually prefigured in the real Loveland mythology of the Frogman, and some of which he'd sort of escalated in a Lovecraftian fashion, as one does. He said that, you know, the Loveland Frogman is real. I, I looked into it. He had done sort of a fun game in a sort of what if Loveland had become kind of like Point Pleasant and embraced its cryptid and decided to make a bunch of money from its cryptid. Loveland apparently has... We'll get to it has. It's on the way. It's on the road to being Point Pleasant. It's not quite there, but it's that sort of what if Innsmouth was Salem, right? What if it was a tourist attraction where people went to and said, oh, no, the bad government was so mean in 1928 and everyone pretended to be frog people in Innsmouth. I got that very same vibe off of Frogman. It was a terrific movie. I recommend it. And that's what got me down the Loveland, Ohio Frogman trail. And uh, this is an interesting, if a somewhat damp trail, mm-hmm. because the sightings start in the 50s and they're, they're very sporadic, but uh, there's even a, a relatively recent one, although it turns out that many of the sightings kind of have asterisks next mm-hmm. to them. But the first one, Starts in uh, 1955. Yeah, we have a sighting that is variously reported to be May of 1955, often by a nameless businessman who has somehow adapted the name Robert Honeycutt. He's on a road by a river near a bridge, and he sees three frog-like humanoids between three and four feet tall, one holding a sparking wand over his head. And sort of he looks at them, and when the frog pulls out the wand and looks at him, that's when he takes fright and runs away. Uh, he says they smelled of almonds and alfalfa. Other reports, uh, versions of this report say that it's a foul smell, so maybe bitter almonds and alfalfa rotting in the field, not what you imagine a delicious shampoo is what it sounds like they right. smell like. And sometimes in sort of later references you will see, and they're reputed to do magic, which I guess is because they have a wand. Ha- have a wand, although <laughs> yep. we don't see whatever magic the wand right. does it you know maybe it's just a flashlight we don't know and then there is a similar sighting and so similar that i suspect we are dealing with urban folklore in in ovo here uh, reported in june or july by one carlos flanagan and this seems to be the version that made it into the ufo literature because a ufo guy one of the sort of self-appointed researchers went out to loveland and looked into it later that summer and talked to the cops and he sh- says he went to the witness's ranch and the witness was salty because the cops didn't believe him. And they showed him a picture of the Hopkinsville demon, which is a different cryptid from Kentucky across the river, but it doesn't look like the Hopkinsville demon. He, he denied any connection to that. So this is sort of a similar UFO type story, but it's again, we saw an alien, but no saucer, which in my book makes him a cryptid. Right. So. However, there is a supposed eyewitness drawing and it's not clear whether this is Robert Honeycutt or Carlos Flanagan or the unnamed witness. And they do look more like weird aliens in that one in that they, you know, have sort of round heads and then they're kind of have big sort of portly torsos and mm-hmm. not very frog-like at all. Yeah. But they were said to have leathery skin. And so uh, I guess this is the where the idea that it's as a Betrachian aspect came from or that drawing is spurious. We don't know. Right. And then there are also UFO sightings in Loveland in May and July of 1955 during the general Ohio river flap of UFO sightings that there are bigger, more dramatic versions of the UFO encounter story that are up and down the Ohio Valley. Loveland is technically on the little Miami river, but it's part of the Ohio Valley system. And to what extent any or all of this is 
self-reinforcing confabulation, none may say. So we fast forward into the early 70s for uh, another couple of incidents. Yeah. And this, again, is either the same incident or two different incidents, and we'll understand that in a bit. March 3rd, 1972, a policeman named Ray Shockey, possibly with his partner Mark Matthews, sees a frogman scuttle across the road, frogman just like the ones seen in 1955, which by now are part of the area's urban legendary. It's talked about by kids at campfires. So Ray Shockey grows up in Loveland. He's heard of the frogman. When he sees a figure, it's the frogman, scuttles across the road and goes over a guardrail. There are allegedly scratches on the guardrail. They are not photographed. Who can say? So he gets laughed at by cops on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th. Mark Matthews, his presumed partner, maybe, sees a tailed frogman and shoots a gun at it as it goes over the rail. And this is sort of cast in some versions as Mark Matthews is angry that people don't believe his partner, Ray Shockey. In other versions, it's Mark Matthews playing a prank on Ray Shockey. Mark Matthews himself, apparently, has recanted the story and says it was an iguana that he found. Right. And in one version, he produced the iguana with its tail shot off. Right. None of these make a police officer look good. No. <laughs> in all the versions, he's firing at this thing for no reason. And, and when you look into the records of the Loveland Police Department, anyway, Ray Shockey is the one who's a cop. There is no Mark Matthews. Now, Mark Matthews might have been a county sheriff or someone else who didn't make it into the record for whatever reason. He might have been a deputy. We don't know any of these things. Or he might not have existed, or he might be an area figure who years later attached himself to the fun story and said, I was there and it was an iguana just to be, you know, on YouTube like people do. Yeah, there is someone representing themselves as the experiencer in this event who would afterwards follow up with people making these reports and say, no, it was an iguana. It was a hoax. There was nothing. Keep my name out of this, mm -hmm. which is a somewhat more active bailout procedure <laughs> than we normally see. And one you would not really expect to be needed in the Loveland, Ohio frogman case. But there we are. Yes. Yeah, so that makes hmm, what's really going on here that uh, I mean, it, it could just be that they don't want to look stupid and they're annoyed that this urban legend has accreted around them. But that would make sense. That's, mm -hmm. that's the fun ruining answer. There's a 2016 sighting, which has the largest asterisk next to it, in which a Pokemon Go a player allegedly sighted it on Loveland Madeira Road, which is well into the city, which causes everyone to completely dismiss the possibility of the, the story because Frogman couldn't possibly head into an urban neighborhood, you know, unlike, you know, coyotes or right. bears or deer Rabbits. or other things. <laughs> it wouldn't do that. Why would it do that? That makes no sense. This, like this isn't possible behavior. Yeah, or uh, accompanying this sighting, there is brief video footage, uh, which has the creature look sort of leprechaunish with glowing eyes, and it has a sort of a prancing gait. And clearly here, the creature is camouflaging itself uh, by making itself look like crude CGI. Yeah, well, there was, see, the, uh, the Mego used to just be invisible on cameras, and then that got weird. And so they said, what if we just like, like terrible effects? And so that's the new Mego uh, system that the Loveland Frogman seems to be using, I guess. If you are a kind of person who maintains a cryptid website, you will often reference the legend, either the Shawnee or the Miami Indians. You will reference their legend of Shawanak, the water demon. There is no such legend. It does not seem to be 
anything. The word Shawanak doesn't even mean anything in Shawnee. So I'm sure the Shawnee or leave us out of this. Yes, please. We will come to Daniel Boone days and yell, but that's the only thing we plan on doing with your nonsense tourism. But th- th- you'll see that on oftentimes. And certainly I think that if we are building a Tulpa of the frogmen, which is always on the table, Robin can't ever rule out a Tulpa. Why would you not be building a Tulpa backwards, right? Why do Tulpas always exist in the present? That doesn't make any sense. So maybe you're Tulpifying this imaginary legend and the actual Shawnee, when they show up and they see this uh, frogman water demon, they're like, what the hell is that? And maybe they give it a name that means nothing in their language. Uh, It's the Shawanook, get it. And then that's it. And so we have sort of a, a backwards Tulpifying is what's going on. There is also a connected uh, cryptid in nearby Milton, Kentucky, the giant lizard. And the giant lizard is a 12 to 15 foot lizard. And it's got kind of like a monitor lizard, a Komodo dragon. And it shows up and scares people in Milton, Kentucky. And and a 12 foot monitor should scare anyone. Don't mess with them. Yeah. They've got poison mouths because it's full of rotting uh, flesh. So the Frogman, of course, is a beloved cryptid, uh, not just in Loveland, but in Cincinnati, the general area as well. Even before the movie, it's a subject of a 2014 fringe musical, Hot Damn, It's the Loveland Frog. Mm -hmm. And the first annual Frogman Festival was held on uh, March 4th of this year, featured speakers, including like actual naturalists, Mm -hmm. vendors, games, and the debut of the Frogman Dry Hopped Lager. Now, I don't normally prefer a heavily hopped beer, but in this case, I I can see why they went there. Yeah, exactly. And uh, he can now be cited in what will surely confuse things in mascot form. So uh, he's sort of a foam-covered, bright green humanoid mascot who uh, is is now the, the ambassador of the city of Loveland, and you can find him hiking down the little Miami scenic bike trail or hanging out in various parks, or paddling down the river, apparently, which I would not want to do if I was in a mascot <laughs> Well, uh, once you're once you're in a mascot outfit, I feel this is like being the geek in the circus. Your your other options have been so constrained. If you fall in and you're wearing a foam costume, you yeah. might soon regret the physics of that. And he, he will provide you with uh, information on Loveland's uh, food and drink, and it's one-of-a-kind shopping opportunities. Right. You can certainly buy more Loveland Frogman merchandise in Loveland than you could anywhere else. And I'm sure many other wonderful things. Loveland, Ohio, from all accounts, seems like a perfectly nice little town. I say nothing mean about Loveland, Ohio, although admittedly the film was shot in Stillwater, Minnesota, which is also a lovely little town. But their embrace of their Frogman is, you know, I think very much modeled after Point Pleasant, which has embraced the Mothman in the last 20 odd years and has seen nothing but floods of nerds uh, as a result and nerds spend money as we've all learned. So good job, Loveland. So two ways to gamify this. Mm-hmm. One is it's, it's deep ones. Yep. They're in a river, <laughs> they're moving inland. And the other is that this is a manifestation, a benign manifestation of something more sinister. So that yes, there is a Tulpa of the Frogman, but it's not the worst Tulpa, or at least it's not the source of the thing that is uh, causing confabulations to become real. And there are, of course, alarming things about this story. There is, There must have been some reason why the police officer in the early 70s uh, opened fire on this thing. So mm-hmm. you could make it the uh, actual threat rather than the sort of cool little outer layer that the players uh, think maybe is the threat, but is 
something of a misdirect, which of course naturally points to what's really going on. And although it may entirely be, you know, folk fiction, that initial May 1955 sighting under the bridge has that sense, as you read it, of the folkloric uncanny that genuine experience or events have. The notion that maybe someone did see these three weird figures and one of them held up this glowing wand and he was unaccountably terrified and there was a strange smell that makes no sense as connected to the other things. All of these details feel like they're wrapped around a real experience or event. And so what I think you might want to say in a gamifying thing is that something did happen in the late spring, early summer of 1955 in Loveland, Ohio. And it might have been an eruption of a, of a mythos entity, or it might have been a demon, or it might have been something that happened. But this tulpa, this sort of benign tulpa is the attempt of the, of the universe to sort of scar tissue around this real wound that it received. And so as we get farther away from the actual uncanniness, things become more familiar and more normal in the weird version of normal and then eventually they're recapitulated within the spectacle as a mascot and the rest of this fun stuff and a, and a logger and a and a movie and whatever else and so this is reality sort of building up scar tissue around this central horrendous enigma and maybe loveland is where bad magicians come the your enemies in an unknown armies game or even a cthulhu game they're coming and they're trying to dig through this layer of self-defense cryptid scar tissue to get to the real horrendous anomaly. And your job is to, you know, help the veil out and say, nope, it's just a frogman, just like everyone lo loves the frogman. This is what's going on. And you have to sort of prevent them from uncovering the genuinely horrifying triplicity of ultra terrestrial figures that did in fact show up there once from the, you know, bad dimension or whatever. And that that's Loveland is, is a natural weak point, but it's, it's natural. You know, the scar tissue of human folklore is working away at it and you have to sort of preserve that scar tissue. Your job is not to debunk the frogman and say, no, it was just an escaped Gila monster. Your job is to preserve the frogman and say, yep, yep, the tulp is real. That's a real frogman. No, nothing to see here. Certainly no ultra terrestrial invasion. That would be bad. Right. And speaking of things that are sort of gnawing at the back of your consciousness and seem slightly awry, the listener made me wondering why we've got a Lipton hut as the second segment and not at the end. And you're going to find out why on the other side of this here commercial. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by John. 
Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through. Make sure this podcast doesn't roll a 20 and fall backwards down the stairs, breaking its neck by joining the efforts of Patreon backers. Manfred Gabriel. Dare Barefoot. James Tatum. Rich Spainauer. And Eric R. And the reason why Lipton Hut got bumped up is that it's time for Ken's Bookshelf. Because, Ken, you and I are back from London and from Dragon Meat, where we had a delightful time. And fortunately, we managed to rearrange the schedule a little and still, uh, despite vagaries, get in a bit of book shopping for you and vicarious me handing you books and trying to get you to buy them for me. You went to uh, Treadwells and Foils, and we're going to jump right in with the requisite pile of books. And we're going to go in the usual progression from the uh, real and the reliable, and we're going to end up with a, a treasure that exists in a liminal space. And so uh, with the first respectable book, we come to Otherlands, A World in the Making by Thomas Halliday. Yeah, Otherlands is basically Halliday taking a bunch of places that we know what they looked like in paleontological times, because we've dug them up, and sort of doing a you were there, what does this look like, what does the earth look like, what's going on type of vista, and it goes backwards in time. So we start with the Alaska in the Pleistocene when, you know, people are crossing over the Bering Straits into, or the Bering Land Bridge into uh, America, and then back into the Pliocene in Kenya when people are being evolved out, the Homo erectus is forming, and then it keeps going back and back and back. So by the time you get to the Permian, we're in Niger for some reason that I'm not sure what, but we'll find all about it. Then all the way back to Edicura, which are the Precambrian fossils in Australia that uh, look an awful lot like cone creature footprints, if you're asking me. So uh, it's just a sort of tour through the, you know, greatest vistas of paleontology with a sort of a presentation of them, not so much teleological as this is what will become this, but as this is what it looks like now with all of its giant ferns and whatnot. So really well-reviewed, very interesting looking approach and uh, ideal for time travelers, I would say. Right. Right. I've been given to understand that every book on Tibet has to use the phrase roof of the world, but at least this one does. It's Jesuit on the roof of the world. Ippolito Desideri's mission to Tibet by Trent Yeah, this is apparently the first book in any language about Ippolito Desideri, who was a Jesuit who visited Tibet between 1715 and 1721, and he was the first encounter between Tibet and the West, and sort of, you know, studied Tibetan Buddhism in great detail, because if you're a Jesuit, your job is to learn all about other people's religions so you can debate them. They love that. And then also, as an 18th century Jesuit, he was all about science, and so it was bringing scientific learning and telescopes and microscopes to Tibet to see what he could learn from there and also, you know, find out what Tibetan astronomy knew and pick up the language, just sort of, you take these sort of autistic argumentative polymaths and you send them to the far corners of the earth. That was the Jesuit model for about 150 years, and it produced people like Ippolito Desideri. Now we have something that the plot hook is right in the subtitle. Alexandria, 
The Quest for the Lost City by Edmund Richardson. And when one sees Alexandria, one thinks of famous Alexandria in Egypt and says, that wasn't lost. We know just where it is. It's right there at Alexandria. But this is the quest for Alexandria ad Cacausos, or as it is annoyingly called throughout here, Alexander beneath the mountains. <laughs> that does not narrow it down, just throwing that out there. But anyway, this turns out to have been probably Bagram, just outside Kabul, which was itself probably a Persian foundation named Kapisa, which Alexander also rebuilt. And the best part about all of this is that a guy named Charles Masson, who was a sometime spy for the British India office and part-time archaeologist, is the guy who found the bits of Alexandrian remains here at Bagram that let people know this is where Alexandria ad Caucasus was. But he does it in 1833 during the sort of wildest man who would be kingiest part of British and Afghan history. So it's going to be a, a great story about Masson, regardless of its value as archaeology. So really a double tap of a book and uh, looks terrific. Fun ruiners will say that Masson did precious little actual archaeology, but, you know, he was busy. He had a lot of other stuff on his mind. From possibly archaeology to paleontology, we come to The Man Who Found the Missing Link, The Extraordinary Life of Eugene Dubois by Pat Shipman. Yeah, Eugene Dubois was a sort of, a, he was a Darwinist. He believed in Darwin. This was in the 1880s and 1890s when it was still controversial. He sort of reasoned out for himself where the missing link between cave people and regular people should be. And he figured out, well, we know about the continent of Lemuria where they probably evolved. So what's near Lemuria where cavemen would be. And he thinks Java and he goes to Java and he digs around and he finds Java man. And everyone's very excited, except everyone who yells at him that says, it's not Java man. You just found an orangutan. Stop being a liar. And so he spent the rest of his life after 1891, triumphantly finding Java man, arguing about Java Man. And if you look at Java Man discourse, it's still super heated because there is a big controversy is, is Java Man an actual ancestor of Homo sapiens or is it a side path of Homo erectus? And you will get big shouting even now on that question. I think the consensus is that Java Man is a side path, but that consensus is, as this book will remind you, very narrowly argued and very lightly supported. And so the life of this guy, Dubois, is also pretty fascinating in the way that, you know, Victorian obsessive scholars often are. And uh, it will certainly give you lots of uh, material for a sort of looking for the Chocho ruins, looking for early mankind type uh, adventure. One thing that makes Foils an expansive Kenhite trap is its well-stocked espionage section. And we come to the espionage section of our list with Spy of the Century, Alphabetal and the Betrayal of Austria-Hungary by John Sadler. Yeah, this is about a guy named Alfred Rettel, who was already on my radar. Rettel was one of the pioneers of counterintelligence. He ran the uh, Austro-Hungarian secret police, basically. He pioneered using one-way mirrors in interrogation. He pioneered using bugs, which in the 1880s is quite the pioneering job. He would record testimony. He's very uh, technophilic and very organized. And sadly, he was also a double agent for the Russians because he was gay and the Russians found out about it. And in Austria-Hungary, there was only a certain class of people who were allowed to be gay. And that was the imperial family. And if you weren't in that, too bad. So uh, Redl basically gets flipped by the Russians who threatened to expose his, his lover. 
And finally, very tragically, he kills himself at the moment that Austria and Russia are going to war. And he realizes that basically he has enabled Russia to penetrate the Austrian military intelligence system. And so it was a, a sad end to a guy who, in better circumstances and perhaps more progressive circumstances in Austria, would have been known as um, uh, as a real pioneer of, of this sort of counterintelligence work and police work in general. Those who uh, want to put some espionage in their classic Call of Cthulhu era Lovecraftian investigation might reach for The Secret Twenties, British Intelligence, The Russians, and The Jazz Age by Timothy Phillips. Yeah, this is about the sort of back and forth, the Bolsheviks in, in Russia, beginning with Lenin and moving into his immediate successors, almost immediately began a program of subversion and intelligence in Britain. And possibly because even in this pre-Philby era, virtually everyone who went to Oxford and Cambridge was some sort of lefty. They said, well, that can't be. Our enemies are not the Bolsheviks. They're just, you know, like a faculty lounge, only they run Russia now. And it turned out that that was ridiculously wrongheaded. But in 1924, when the labor government takes power, the British Secret Service basically stops briefing them on the Russians because they say they'll just give all that information to the Russians. So they couldn't trust their own democratically elected government. So they sort of began their own counter government, a deep state, if you will, and launched various policy and political assaults to amp up the the threat of Soviet intelligence. And this includes things like the Litvinov affair and a forged letter, the Zinoviev letter that may or may not have had any basis in reality. But there's lots of stuff that the British intelligence got up to, to basically work around the fact that they saw their democratically elected master as you know, a tool of Russia, or at least hostile to their attempt to contain Russian intelligence. So it's a big, very exciting, very fun, perhaps relevant story. And Timothy Phillips tells it apparently pretty well. Now, as longtime listeners know, my chief role in these segments is to be a subtitle quibbler. And I'm going to quibble big time with the double use of South Africa in Hitler's South African Spies, Secret Agents and the Intelligence War in South Africa by Everett Kleinhans. You could have stopped at Hitler's South African Spies. You absolutely could have. And in fairness, that is what Kleinhans' book does. It stops at South African Spies. It will come as perhaps no surprise that if you have a global ideology of white supremacy that you may or may not find ideological fellow travelers amongst the Boers and Afrikaners in South Africa. These are guys, remember, who have lifetime, not even generational, but lifetime memories of having been conquered by the British in 1903. So we're not that far away from them seeing the British as imperialist oppressors. And you combine those two factors with, you know, Hitler's money. And sure enough, Hitler gets a ton of spies in South Africa. Mostly what they do is serve as spotters for U-boats, but that's still pretty bad. And I am assuming that any other deviltry they got up to, Ernst Kleinhans, will uh, nail down for us. Speaking of, of Hitler, the author of uh, The Nazi Occult's Hand must go out to reach certain books and put them in his pile, and one of them has to be The Astrologer, How British Intelligence Plotted to Read Hitler's Mind by James Paris. Yeah, this is uh, a new biography of a guy who's been touched on before in this circle, a guy named Louis de Waal. He was an astrologer, 
lived in Germany, bounced after the Gestapo banned Freemasonry and secret societies in 1935, moved to England, and once the war started, said, hey, I'm an astrologer, Hitler's into astrology, Rudolf Hess is super into astrology, maybe I could help. And the SOE or some version thereof said, absolutely, and sent him to making fake versions of Nostradamus that said Nostradamus prophecies that Hitler will fail, and we'd like you to do some fake horoscopes that say, oh, look at that, we cast the horoscope of the Third Reich, and it's going to end in ruin and tears. And so we made all these fake horoscopes and the fake Nostradamus, and it was put in fake astrology books and dumped all over Germany by the SOE and by, you know, airdrops and whatnot. And this is real. This is categorically true. This absolutely happened. And Louis DeWool stands say that he also played a major role in the PSYOP to bring Rudolf Hess to England and embarrass Hitler by having the deputy Fuhrer fly to England and immediately get interned, which indeed did embarrass the Fuhrer. And so the degree of DeWall's involvement in Rudolf Hess is sort of the open question, but he's an interesting fellow all the way along. And there was a great occult historian named Alec Howe who wrote a book about it. Alec Howe was also sort of in the SOE or political warfare executive, so he knew what he was talking about. And then this is now the first modern sort of independent scholar who is looking at this whole story and hopefully will say exactly how much DeWall had to do with recruiting Hess, or is that just a story we like to tell ourselves to big up astrology and or the SOE? So James Paris hopefully will nail this guy down and DeWall's kind of an interesting fellow anyway, so maybe there'll be even more stuff brought to light. But, you know, you can't, as you say, if you're writing a book called The Nazi Occult, you can't pass this up. Right. And uh, certain uh, subgenres of the espionage book are written knowing that you will buy a copy. Mm -hmm. And among those is books about what Ian Fleming was up to in real life. Therefore, we come to Ian Fleming and Operation Golden Eye, Keeping Spain Out of World War II by Mark Simmons. Yep. As you say, at some point, once you have enough books on a topic, you have a collection on that topic, and now you have an obligation. This one talks about Ian Fleming and the actual thing he probably did do, his only documented overseas mission for MI6, which was to go to Spain and help out with the general effort of reminding Franco that Britain still controlled the ocean and Spain is surrounded by ocean. So the job was to keep Franco neutral and Portugal neutral, and Operation Goldeneye was basically a psychological warfare option. Fleming was part of that. This attempts to sort of go through you know, what Fleming's contributions might have been, one assumes they were relatively minor, and then discuss the, you know, actual Operation Goldeneye, which was big enough and important enough that Fleming named his house after it. So you can't, you can't argue with that. And again, it's part of the collection. I'm sure it's lovely. And I know nothing bad about Mark Simmons, the author. Well, we're going to head off for a little break for an exciting commercial message and be back with the second half of your stack in mere moments. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... Ugh! 
in Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathos tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. And we're back with the final espionage title before we uh, head deeper into elliptonic waters, and that is Crowns and Trenchcoats, a Russian prince in the CIA by David Chavavadze. And this was a real find for you. Yeah, this one turned up to be, this is, I mean, this is a weird trip because Foils, as we will learn, had some great elliptony and Treadwells has always had a strong used book section, less strong now as they've uh, shrunk the floor space of it. But this is one of their triumphs. And it is a memoir, as you say, by David Chavchavadze, who was a descendant of Georgian royalty, the Kingdom of Georgia, then Soviet Georgia, now the Republic of Georgia, and also the Romanovs. So he's, his blood is teal. It's so blue. And so he, you know, is, you know, run out of Georgia with the rest of his family. Then he joins the United States Army because he's an expat and has to earn a living somehow, serves with the army and then becomes a CIA specialist in, guess what, anti-Soviet activity. And he gets posted to Berlin. And this is his apparently self-published autobiography, so I'm very excited to find out all about it. And as many people do not, he has indexed his autobiography. So for that alone, in addition to his service against the hated Soviets, I salute you, David Chavadze. And good Lord, you know, Georgian nobility fighting off the, the Soviets in the Cold War. If this doesn't say Fall of Delta Green, then I have to ask, what are you even doing? So the following title's placement on the list suggests that it is mythological but respectable, and that's Shakespeare and the Gods by Virginia Mason Vaughn. Yes, this is part of the Arden Shakespeare. It's a real thing by a real scholar, and what she's doing is just saying, goodness, for a good Protestant boy, Shakespeare references the classical gods a lot. What's up with that? And what's up with that is he's a Renaissance man, and that's what Renaissance people do. But she breaks out six of the gods that he mentions a lot, Jupiter, Diana, Venus, Mars, Hercules, and Ceres, and says, how does he use them? And then presents them as leitmotifs in the plays and picks a play in which those gods are particularly prominent, and then says, how do you read this play as a play about Mars or a play about Jupiter or a play about Diana? And this is all completely legitimate literary criticism, despite the fact that it can be used and will be used, I promise you, for weird magical ends. So all love and scholarly hats off to Virginia Mason Vaughn, but she's messed with a whirlwind and she knows it. Next, we come to what's not just a no-brainer, but a double no-brainer. The English Ghost, Spectres Through Time by Peter Aykroyd. Yeah, it was uh, kind of startling to me that I didn't own this book. So here we are. And it's basically just an assembly of ghost stories linked by sort of the Peter Aykroyd touch of making these uncommon linkages, especially Ghosts of Place is very, very strong within this book. And Peter Aykroyd, of course, is one of our auto buys 
along with, you know, Adrian Mayer and a couple of other authors. So him on ghosts, just a slam dunk, if you will, and certainly valuable for a million purposes, but certainly if you're doing any sort of, you know, MR Jamesian game or whatever, this would be valuable. Now, am I wrong to think that Archangels and Archaeology, JSM Ward's Kingdom of the Wise by Jeffrey Jin, gets us closer to Wu territory? It does. This is a book by a real person, a real scholar, Jeffrey Jin, teaches British history and heritage studies. He's at the University of Queensland, Australia. So the book itself is not Wu, but it is about Wu. But it is about a big Wu guy. J.S.M. Ward, who was a mystic and spiritualist and also owned one of the biggest antiquities collections in England. And when he opened his antiquities museum, much like a creationist museum in America, he presents it with a certain story already in mind. And there is great criticism and yelling back and forth. And he apparently lost a court case in 1945. The back says unfairly disgraced. I think that maybe good men can differ on this question. So he upstakes and moved to Cyprus, where people are less judgy about British antiquities. And then his collection apparently made it to Australia after he died. And this is why a scholar in Australia is studying JMS Ward. But just for the title alone, Robin, Archangels and Archaeology, who doesn't love that? It's more of that wild British antiquarianism gone either wrong or right, depending on your polarity. And uh, I could not love J.S.M. Ward more, even though I'd never heard of him before I picked up this book. Now we come to Discovering the Lead Codices by David and Jennifer Elkington. You may remember when I found this at Treadwell's that I did not know, was this real scholar duped? Was this maverick scholar finding real thing? You know, what was going on? Well, it turns out it was pretend scholar duped. These lead codices are considered forgeries by everybody. They're full of magical things from all kinds of periods. And some would say this proves that they're a forgery. And those some would be virtually every expert antiquarian. But others would say this is hermetic. This is the sort of jackdaw spirit of the hermetic era. That's why they're super magic. But that would then argue that they're not from the time of Jesus, which is apparently what David and Jennifer Elkington believe, but they set up a foundation and they have all manner of nonsense and then they wrote their book on it. So to put it as boldly as I can, a book made of lead with little stamps and, and sigils on it, the books are about the size of index cards, the pages are, turns up in Jordan. Maybe it was found in a cave a hundred years ago. Maybe it was found four years ago. We don't know. It was found in someone's workshop. Maybe it was found in someone's lead workshop. We also don't know. It falls into the hands of a guy who's trying to shop it around. David Elkington gets a hold of a copy of it. The, you know, photographic image, I guess, part of the shopping around process decides that it was written by Jesus's most magical followers immediately after his death and sort of rides that hobby horse into uh, bilking rich British people, which I guess makes it a victimless crime out of money to explore the lead codices and pry them loose from the mean old uh, fun ruiners in the Jordanian Ministry of Antiquities, which is, I guess, where they still are, if they are still lurking around. Maybe they were just sent back and they're still being flogged on a Cypriot website somewhere. But the larger point is, this is David Elkington's How Dare You Not Believe Me book, and obviously is part of a storied tradition, not just in biblical archaeology, but in archaeology in general. Now, Foyles has decided to compete with Treadwells by expanding its elliptic section. And this is where I found in what I am happy to say is labeled their pseudo-archaeology section, something to add to your pile. 
And that is The Giants of Stonehenge in Ancient Britain by Jim Vera and Hugh Newman. Long-time listeners may remember that they are the authors of Giants on Record, America's Hidden History, Secrets in the Mounds and Smithsonian Files, which I believe I picked up in a Powell's run a while back. Well, now they're turning their similarly scholarly attentions to Great Britain and its many, many, not just legendary, but also reported in the British press that benchmark for objectivity and realism throughout the world, um, bunch of giants. And did giants build Stonehenge? I don't know. But the cover shows a giant building Stonehenge. So what can you say? The margins, as uh, Robin and I enjoyed a good long reading, a collaborative reading of the back cover of this book together when he found it. Then again, while drinking at Simon's, this book is just an endless cavalcade of fun. The back margins are razor thin, lots of questions being asked by it. Many of them perhaps could be answered. Don't be dumb. No. But what heartless person would say, was St. Christopher a Canaanite giant? You know, sure, he's a dog-headed guy, but maybe he was also giant. That's new scholarship. Possibly canine giant. <laughs> Could he have been a canine giant? Could yeah. it have been a misprint? Who can say? Oscar Wilde's dad found a giant. Are you saying Oscar Wilde's dad isn't cool? How dare you? So lots of good stuff here. Lots of good stuff about British giants. I'm sure that it will, you know, a million household uses. But if I run Pendragon next and they run into giants, Jim Vera and Hugh Newman will own a little bit of that, I think. And in a way, I'm even prouder of finding this one for you, Ken, because it wasn't filed in Elliptony. It was filed in straight up Japanese history, but it is a roundup of uh, not only Japanese folklore, but current Elliptony, and it's called Haunted Japan, Exploring the World of Japanese Yokai Ghosts and the Paranormal by Katrin Ross. Yeah, it was originally called Japanese Ghost Stories, which it absolutely is not. It's a bunch of people who believe in ghosts and cryptid lore and guys who think they have magic pearls in their mouths. It's most similar, I think, to the generally terrible genre of book, because it was generally written by Brad Steiger, where they would go to an American city, San Francisco, Chicago, wherever else, and they would find all the weirdos in that city, the practitioners of the occult, your uh, voodooists, your UFO nuts, your ghost hunters, and he would put them all in the book and say, this is the real psychic Chicago. This is magic San Francisco. And so I think Katrian Russ goes to haunted Japan with the same thing in mind, but not being Brad Steiger seems to have produced a much more fun and more usable and more interesting and more in-depth and better in every way compendium. And I, again, I think that no one really knows how to shelve a book like this because there isn't sort of, you know, a, a liptonic survey as a category. I would almost say it belongs in Japanese cultural studies as much as it belongs in nonsense, but uh, history is maybe not where to put it. And I also don't think it's a book of ghost stories. It's its own thing. And I'm sure it's wonderful. And hats off to Robin for winkling it out. Obviously, something has rubbed off on him after a decade of this podcast. And now we come to Harry Smith, American Magus, edited by Paula Igliori. And we've touched on Harry Smith before in this podcast. He is most famous, I believe, as the assembler of the Anthology of American Folk Music, which is now at Smithsonian, and you can buy it from Smithsonian for a non-trivial amount of money. But he was a lot of things. His interest in folk music was only one of his many interests, included occultism and alchemy. His liner notes to the folk music anthology are super weird and magical in their own way. He eventually decided he followed Robert Flood's alchemy as his spiritual belief, and he very much was the kind of occult weirdo that could only be produced by mass education and low rent in New York City, because he 
lived in apartments that just became full of nonsense. And this is by Paula Igliori, who was referred to as his spiritual wife by at least one source. And this is a bunch of people who knew him and her own reminiscences and sort of a assembly of what it was like to hang out with Harry Smith at his weirdest. And apparently his weirdest got pretty weird because at one point he lived solely on milk and amphetamines. And that's, you know, that's not all the food groups, Robin. No. <laughs> you need at least one more food group in there. There's several more food groups you want there. And finally, we come to a book that you coveted so hard that you bought it thinking that you might possibly already have it. This is someone we've uh, given a whole segment to previously on the show. Kenneth Grant, who is one of the self-proclaimed heirs to Crowley, apparently one of the nicer ones and the one who incorporates a Lovecraft into his mythology. And this title is Beyond the Mauve Zone. Yeah, I don't know how nice Kenneth Grant is nicer than Crowley, but that's a low bar. In the previous segment, you said he seemed okay. He seems okay. And he does seem okay, mostly because he puts his energy into writing these super thick tomes of mystical revelation. Well, actually, they're magical practice and mystical. They're very good. Uh, The Mauve Zone is the place that lies beyond the regular dimensions. And it's a scary zone that uh, Kenneth Grant has named. And seeing past the Mauve Zone is where you see Cthulhu monsters and the Clipote and all the other bad stuff that's outside the the realm of good creation. And people, including H.P. Lovecraft, have seen past the Mauve Zone, according to our man Kenneth Grant. And this is, I believe, the seventh or eighth in his... Yeah, this is the eighth in his series of nine magical studies, the Typhonian trilogies. And uh, I did not have it as it transpired, and I'm happy to have bought it in its new 2022 reprint edition, the good people at Starfire, keeping the dream alive. And uh, someday I will have all nine Kenneth Grant books. And then I will have all nine Kenneth Grant books, Robin. That's what will happen. Senator, this press conference is over. Yes. Well, the press conference is over. So is this episode. So next week, we will have our uh, live uh, episode that we recorded at Dragon Meat, and that'll be our last episode of the year. And uh, we don't wish you a happy holidays in that one. So let's wish you happy holidays now. And uh, we'll be back after that in 2024 with uh, more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Prograin Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Protect the iguana that is this podcast from unwarranted shootings by joining esteemed backers Peter Adkison. Yadge from Edinburgh. Chris Doyle, Drew Eichholz, and Daniel Markwig. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Celebrate densely packed biomes with our latest design, You Are a Special Island. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.